Well, hey, welcome to Center Church. If you are in person, we're glad you're here. If you're online, we're glad that you're watching. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you are new, you picked a great weekend to come because today we are going to be looking at one of the most important events in the entire Bible, okay? One of the most important events in the entire Bible, what the Bible calls the Passover, okay? It's going to be found in Exodus chapter 11 and 12. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and meet me there. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 11 and 12, the Passover of the Israelites was a massive deal. It was the defining moment in Israelite history. It is what the book of Exodus has been building towards. God says, hey, I'm going to come and deliver you. Nine plagues happen. None of them work. And God says, this one is going to work. This is going to be how I get my people out of slavery in Egypt and I get them moving towards the promised land. This was such a big deal that it is referred to constantly in the Old Testament. 46 different times in the Old Testament, the people of Israel are called to look back to the Passover, look back to God's deliverance of them from Egypt. And what I hope to show you today in this text is that the Passover of the Israelites is one profound, powerful meaning foreshadowing of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That the profound meaning of the Passover is realized in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To the point that Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 5, Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. So here's what that means. The more that you understand the Passover, the better that you'll understand the gospel. Okay, so that's what I try to help you do today is understand what the Passover meant then and what it means for us today. Okay, so look at chapter 11, verse 1 with me. We're going to learn three things that the Passover teaches us about salvation. Here we go. The Lord said to Moses, yet one plague more I will bring upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will drive you away completely. So the Lord said, there is one more plague that I'm going to bring, which means there's been nine plagues already and nothing has worked. Okay, nine plagues. Moses has been faithful. Nothing has happened. So from one perspective, it looks like Moses is a total failure right? He looks like a total failure. He did what God called him to do. He was faithful and there was no fruit. And what that teaches us is that sometimes faithfulness looks like failure, right? You, you try to lead family devotions with your kids and you end up sending them all to their rooms, right? Like you, you try to go to an MC and you get there and it's really awkward. You try to share the gospel with a coworker and it falls flat. You see, what we learned from Moses is that you can't always measure faithfulness by fruitfulness, Okay, sometimes you're not seeing fruit because God is at work behind the scenes doing something that you may never know that he is doing. That's the case in here. God is going to come and he's going to change everything in plague number 10, which we start to see in verse 2. Speak now in the hearing of the people that they ask every man of his neighbor and every woman of her neighbor for silver and gold jewelry. And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. So God said to Moses, get this message out. Speak now. There's some urgency here. This is going to happen quickly. Go tell the people to go ask their neighbors for gold and jewelry. And if you're here a couple weeks ago, I told you about that. This is a little bit of justice. This is a little bit of recompense for the 400 years that the Israelites had spent in slavery in Egypt. God was paying them back. He was giving them favor in the eyes of the Egyptians. So we're starting to see things are changing, okay? We're starting to see some signs of hope. This seems different than the other nine plagues. Verse 4. So Moses said, thus says the Lord, about midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the hand mill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. So verses 4 through 9 is Moses warning Pharaoh. It is the most severe warning that Moses gives Pharaoh. He says, if you don't listen, the Lord himself is going to go out in the midst of your people and he is going to strike down every single firstborn from the palace to the prison to the pasture. They're all going to get struck down. 
And part of what this teaches us is that it doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter whether you're wealthy or poor. It doesn't matter whether you are powerful or marginalized. Every single one of us will stand before God and give an account of our lives. That's what we see in Egypt. It wasn't like only Pharaoh and his house. It wasn't only the working class people. If everyone would stand before the Lord, everyone would face judgment. And we see in this passage that God practices what we call retributive justice. Retributive justice means that God pays back sin in exact measure. God does not pay back sin more than it deserves or less than it deserves. God pays back in an exact measure. And if you think with me for a minute, you can see how this is happening. God said, hey, Israel is my firstborn son. That's what he referred to the people of Israel as. He said, you have enslaved my people. You threw my people into the Nile. You murdered the children of Israel. And now retributive justice is going to fall. If you do not repent, if you do not relent, if you do not let my people go, then I will pass through the land and I will execute judgment. And on that day, you will let the people go. And Pharaoh still doesn't listen. Look at verse 9. He still doesn't listen. Pharaoh hardens his heart. God hardens his heart. He will not listen. He will let, let the people go. It has been nine plagues. This is a very strict warning, and Pharaoh is unmoved. So from a human perspective, it's not happening. Okay, you can't get more atomic than that warning. It is not happening. If salvation belongs to Pharaoh, the people aren't going to be saved. But what we're supposed to learn from this is salvation does not belong to Pharaoh. Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the first thing that we learn. Number one, salvation belongs to the Lord. Consider the certainty with which God spoke in verses 1 and 2. He's talking about the most powerful man in the entire world. He's talking about the most powerful nation in the entire world. And he says, no, 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 this is going to happen. I'm going to visit the people, and on that day, Pharaoh will let my people go. Not might let my people go, not will probably let my people go, but he will let my people go. So what makes plague number 10 so different? What makes plague number 10 so different than the previous nine that were not effective? Well, two things. First, Moses plays no part in it. Moses is a passive bystander. He doesn't get to, you know, throw dust in the air. He doesn't get to, like, throw his staff down and have it turn into something. Like, Moses and Aaron are totally passive observers of the 10th plague. Second, in this plague, the Lord himself came down into Egypt. You see that in verse 4? It says, about midnight, I will go out. I will go out in the midst of Egypt. You see, in the first nine plagues, God demonstrated his power through human instruments. But in the 10th plague, God himself came. God himself came down to save his people. One of the major themes in the book of Exodus is that salvation belongs to the Lord. And so when the Lord comes, he brings salvation with him. When the Lord comes, he brings salvation with him. It belongs to no one else. And we see that taught all throughout the scriptures. Psalm chapter 3 verse 8 says this, salvation belongs to the Lord. His blessing be on your people. Revelation 7.10 says salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And because of that reality, the scriptures say that it's foolish of us, it is foolish of us to look anywhere else for deliverance. Psalm 20, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of our Lord, our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand up. Jeremiah 17, 5, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord alone. Now, why should you care at all about that? <laughs> right? Like, I mean, I could convince you of this scripture. They could be like, I guess that's true. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Why does that matter? Here's why it matters. All of us live out of what sociologists refer, for, refer to as a salvation schema. Okay? Let me bring that down to the practical level a little bit. Like, the one of you is like, mm, yeah, salvation schema. You know? Here's what that means practically. We all have a practical heaven and a practical hell. And what your practical heaven is and what your practical hell is determines where you think salvation comes from. 
Okay, let me give you an example. Uh, heaven for you is physical fitness. Hell is being overweight. Salvation belongs to CrossFit. Kale, God forbid. Uh, salvation is marriage, right? Heaven is, is, heaven is marriage. Hell is singleness. Salvation belongs to your dating app. Uh, heaven is sexual expression. Hell is sexual restraint. Salvation belongs to sexual liberation. Salvation is wealth, or heaven is wealth. Hell is poverty. Salvation belongs to your job. Heaven is success, achievement. Hell is failure. Salvation belongs to your work ethic. How about this one? Salvation is your kids getting into a good school. Or hell is your kids getting, or heaven is your kids getting into a good school. Hell is your kids falling behind. Salvation belongs to your private school. I mean, I could just, I could just go on and on with this, right? Man, if we're honest with ourselves, we all live with these things in our life that we think, if I just had that, if I just had that, I'd be okay. Then I would be satisfied. Then I would be happy. If I just had that, that is our practical heaven. And if we say that if I just had that and I'm afraid of this over here, then we think that salvation belongs to something other than the Lord. Firstly, for me, man, you know, heaven, uh, big church, hell, small church. Salvation belongs to church growth. It's, it's just not true. And how many of us have spent our whole lives pursuing a practical heaven only to get there and realize it's not so great? Right? You, you think that what you need is to be in a relationship. And you get into the relationship and you get married and after it wears off, you're like, I'm still lonely and insecure. One of my pastor friends says that lonely, insecure single people become lonely, insecure married people. Right? All married people are like, amen, but not too loud, you know? <laughs> right? It's just we, we spend our lives pursuing practical heavens, and then we get there, and they're not what they appear to be. But here's what Exodus is saying, friends. Salvation belongs to the Lord. True, meaningful, deep satisfaction, the okayness that you long for is never going to come from the next promotion. It's never going to come from the next relationship. It's never going to come from a new city. It's never going to come from a new habit. It only comes from your creator. It only comes from the Lord. You see, the Jews couldn't find salvation. The Jews couldn't earn salvation, but the Jews could receive salvation from the one that it belonged to. The same is true for us. You can't find salvation, you can't earn salvation, but you can receive it. Just as God came down to save the Israelites, God came down to save you in the God-man, Jesus Christ. You see, the salvation that we need is offered through the work of Jesus. But my question is, are you looking for it somewhere else? Are you looking for salvation in a place that you're never going to find it? Are you looking for your okayness, for your deep sense of, I am satisfied, I am valuable from some area or some person or some career or some hobby that is simply never going to be able to provide? Real salvation belongs to the Lord. It comes from the Lord, and he offers it to you as a free gift. You couldn't earn it, you can't find it, but you can receive it through Christ, through repentance and faith. Praise the Lord that the one who owns salvation offers it to us as a gift that we might know him. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now remember, the 10th plague was different. Okay, The 10th plague was very different than the first nine plagues because the Lord himself came into Egypt as divine judge. And this intervention changed the entire situation. You see, Israel's problem was no longer how to escape Pharaoh, but how to be safe before such a God. It no longer is how to escape Pharaoh. It's how are we going to be in the presence of God and not be slain? You see, the key question of the Passover is this, how may we stand safely in the very presence of a holy God? And the answer to that is given in chapter 12. Look at verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, 
This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Okay, God is being very, very practical here. He's saying, what I'm about to do is so significant that it's going to change the most basic thing about you, your calendar. From here on out, the Israelites' entire calendar was based upon God's deliverance from Egypt. His salvation formed their calendar. Let me be really practical with you today. Your salvation will become real when it starts to affect your calendar. It just will, right? Your salvation will become real when it starts to affect your calendar and your wallet. But that's a sermon for another day. <laughs> Honestly, what happens when, when you say, man, I'm in church every single Sunday and I'm at Bible study every single Wednesday night? Man, your, your, your salvation starts to be real. People start to see it. Man, you really know that your salvation is real, that the gospel is really doing something in your life when you say to your kids, hey, we can't go to the birthday party because it's during church. Hey, you can't be on the travel baseball team. Man, because it would, it would mean we're away too many weekends. When you say to your coworkers or your classmates, hey, I can't come out with you on Tuesday night. Why? Because, man, that's when I have my Bible study group. That is when the gospel is really real, when it starts to change our calendar and it changes our commitments. And do you know what? It's a really powerful testimony. Because all of a sudden, your kids start to say like, oh, I think mom and dad actually believe this. And your friends start to say, man, I'm not sure I believe what you believe about Jesus, but you apparently believe what you believe about Jesus. Because you don't just play church. You're orienting your whole life around this. That is what God was saying to the Israelites. Hey, what I'm going to do in your life is so significant. All of the year is going to revolve around this deliverance. And that same thing should be true for us today. Verse 3. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. We think a lamb fed about 10 people. Your lamb shall be without blemish, perfect, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Okay. So on the 10th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar, the people were to go out of the city, get a lamb, and bring it in for inspection. Do you know what else occurred on the 10th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar? Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday. The day that Jesus went into Jerusalem was the very same day that the people went out of the city to get the lamb to bring it in for inspection. And I'm telling you, the Passover and the gospel are so layered. So God said, every single household needs a lamb. If your household is too small, you can't afford a lamb, you can join up with another household, but everybody's got to have a lamb, no exceptions. You shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So the lamb was to be observed for four days. Why? To ensure that it was perfect, that it was unblemished. It was a four-day evaluation period. And then at twilight on the 14th day, the whole congregation was to kill their lambs. Why? Because the lamb would die as a substitute for the sins of the people. The lamb would die instead of the people. You see, the Passover lamb is one of the first and clearest places that the Bible starts to teach the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Okay, that's a theological way to say the lamb died instead of the people. The sins of the people was paid for through the blood of the lamb. And understanding the doctrine of substitution helps you understand the very heart of Christianity and what makes Christians so different from every other religion. Because almost every religion in the world works through salvation, through repayment. Here's what that means practically. I did some bad things, so I'm going to try to do good things that kind of pay back the bad things. 
right? You've, you've done this in your head, like the, the, the scales, but none of us have actually seen physical scales before, right? But it's just like, in your mind, there's like bad things that are weighing it down. You're like, ah, I got to do some good things. I got to like volunteer. I got to be nice to people. And what most people think is if my good things sort of outweigh my bad things, then I'll get into heaven. That is salvation through repayment. That is how almost every religion in the world works. But the Bible says you could never repay your sins. You could, you're way too sinful, and you could never do enough good things to atone for your sins. There is no salvation through repayment, but there is salvation through substitution. The lamb can die instead of you. And if you think about it, substitution really helps us understand both the essence of sin and of salvation. What is the essence of sin? I don't think God is doing a good job, so I'm going to substitute my, myself in his place. I don't think he's right on this issue in the Bible, so I'm going to substitute what I think. I don't trust his wisdom or his goodness in my life, so I'm going to call the shots. I mean, this is what Adam and Eve did in the garden. Satan said, if you eat of the fruit, you will become what? Like God. You see, the essence of sin is us substituting ourselves for God. What is the essence of salvation? God substituting himself for us. Jesus Christ comes and he says, I'll live the life that you should have lived. I'll die the death that you deserved to die. I will shed my blood so that you can be forgiven. All of this is communicated in the Passover land. There is no substitution through repayment, but friends, the good news is, there is no salvation through repayment, but the good news is that there is salvation through substitution. Verse seven. Then they shall take some of the blood of the lamb and put it on the two doorposts and the lentil of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. So God said, take the blood of the lamb and apply it to the doorpost of your home. Then roast and eat the lamb with bitter herbs. All right, what, what, what are the bitter herbs about? The bitter herbs were intended to be a reminder of the bitterness of slavery in Egypt. Because what happened very quickly is the Israelites forgot the bitterness of their slavery. And they actually looked back to Egypt longingly. And they said, we want to go back to Egypt. It's too hard to be God's special people. I want to go back to my slavery in Egypt. And so these bitter herbs were supposed to remind them, hey, slavery wasn't great. But don't we often do the same thing? You know, we're walking with Christ, and maybe you look back on that relationship you used to have or that sin that you used to walk, and you think, man, it was great. You think that your slavery was actually freedom, and what God is saying, it's not. Your slavery was bitter. Your slavery was bondage, and I've delivered you from it. Don't forget that. But that's why they ate it with bitter herbs. And then you know, they're supposed to have their belts on, they're supposed to have their shoes on, they're supposed to have walking staff in their hand. What is that about? It's about mission. You see, God saved Israel out of slavery and onto mission. And God has done the same thing in our lives. He saved us out of the slavery of sin, into the people of God, and on to the mission of God. Out of sin, onto a mission. Then, just like today, verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So I, the Lord, will execute judgment on Egypt. But when I see the blood of the lamb on your doorposts, I will not pass through your home in judgment, but I will pass over your home in mercy. And that is where the phrase pass over comes from. That when God saw the blood of the lamb, he passed over the homes of the Israelites in mercy, in forgiveness. And which leads to the second thing we learned. There is no salvation without sacrifice. 
There is no salvation without sacrifice. How are the Israelites saved? Through the sacrifice of the lamb. No one was saved without the sacrifice. Something or someone was dead in every single home in Egypt that night. It was either the firstborn of the Egyptians or it was the Passover lamb. But there was no salvation without sacrifice. You see, one of the primary questions of the entire Bible is this. How can a holy God dwell in the midst of an unholy people? Or to put it a little more personally, how can a holy God dwell in your midst? How in the world can we sing God with us without being terrified? And how can we ever have hope of dwelling in heaven knowing all that we've done? All the things that we've said, that we haven't said, all the ways that we haven't loved God or our neighbor with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And how can we dwell in God's presence without being consumed? The Bible's answer is sacrifice. Sacrifice is the way that God has made so that we can be in his presence without being consumed. That's what the Passover lamb was about. The lamb died instead of the people. That's what the entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament was about. The book of Leviticus, the book that you get to in your reading plan and then you stop reading, that one, it's entirely about substitutionary atonement. God is saying, here are the sins and here are the sacrifices that cover those sins. It was important. If you wanted the tabernacle in your midst, if you wanted the presence of God in your midst, you needed a covering, right? And that is what the Old Testament system provided. Now, the idea of sacrifice for sin kind of rubs our modern sensibilities the wrong way, right? We think, God, the God of the Bible is so primitive. I can't believe that, you know, he would demand sacrifice for sin. Um, but the problem is we all do the same thing, right? When you perceive injustice or oppression in society, what do you call out for? Justice. What is that? I want sin paid for. What is injustice? When sin is not paid for. You see, we all understand this intuitively, and we do it personally, right? Why is it so hard to forgive somebody that's really hurt you? Because they've done an injustice to you. And either they're going to pay for that injustice, or you're going to have to pay for it, right? On a kind of a sillier note, why do we all keep a list of things that people have done wrong to us? right? Like your mother-in-law list is like this long, right? Your roommate list is this wrong. If they ever come at you, you're coming at them with that list, right? Like that's what that's about because we have this intuitive sense of justice that sin should be paid for. So before we, you know, kind of get on our high horse and criticize the God of the Bible, we, we should just look ourselves in the mirror and say, oh no, we actually all get this. We all value justice. That's what the Lord values. So if atonement through sacrifice is such a big deal, why don't Christians practice it today? Like why isn't that part of our Sunday service? And the reason is that Christ is our Passover lamb, that Christ is our Passover lamb. You see, the Passover lamb is a profound, powerful foreshadowing of the work of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about it with me for a minute. When John the Baptist saw Jesus coming towards him in the Jordan River, what did he cry out? Behold, the lamb of God, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What is Jesus referred to constantly as in the book of Revelation? The lamb who was slain. During which festival was Jesus crucified? The Passover. The parallels between the Passover lamb and Christ are profound. Think with me. The Passover lamb was slain in its prime at one year old. Jesus was slain in his prime, 33. The Passover lamb proved its purity through a four-day evaluation period. Jesus proved his purity through a 30-year evaluation period. The Passover lamb must be without blemish or error. Jesus was without blemish or error. Even the judge who condemned him said, behold, he is innocent. The Passover lamb died at twilight. So did Jesus. The blood of the Passover lamb had to be personally applied to the household of the Israelites to save them. The blood of Jesus Christ has to be personally applied to your heart to save you. God gave Israel a way to escape judgment by putting the blood of the lamb on wooden posts. God has given us a way to escape judgment by putting the blood of his son on wooden posts. 
There is no salvation without sacrifice. But in the riches of his grace, Christ Jesus has made that sacrifice for you. Christ Jesus is the Passover lamb. So that if you apply the blood of the, of the lamb over the doorposts of your life, you are safe. You can take refuge underneath the blood of the lamb and the wrath of God will not fall on your house. So my question is, what are you painting the doorposts of your house with? What are you painting the doorposts of your house with? You see, religious people tend to get this wrong because they try to paint the doorposts of their house with good deeds, with their moral record, with their church attendance. Irreligious people tend to get this wrong because they assume they don't need to paint the doorposts of their house. They just figure they're entitled to salvation. If there is a heaven, they'll definitely get in. But here's what the book of Exodus shows us. Judgment is going to fall on every single person, and there is only one refuge from it. And it is to hide ourselves under the blood of the Lamb. Verse 14. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So the 10th day of the first month became a memorial day. What do we do on Memorial Day? Different than our Memorial Day. We, we remember, right? On our Memorial Day, we remember those who have fallen, defending the freedoms of our country. On this Memorial Day, they were to remember the Passover. And the Memorial Day was to kick off a seven-day feast that's described in verses 15 through 22. You can read that on your own. 15 through 22, explain what became known as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Okay, it was a seven-day period where the Israelite community removed all yeast or leaven from their midst. And it had real two purposes. The first purpose was a reminder that they were delivered from Egypt so quickly that they couldn't even take time to let their bread rise, right? And three of you in this room understand the illustration, right? Like the three that bake, right? Anyway, they didn't have time to let the bread rise. They just had to go, so they had unleavened bread, and so eating unleavened bread was to remind them of that. The second reason was that throughout the Bible, leaven or yeast is usually a symbol of sin, and all you gluten people, gluten-free people are like, amen, it is, you know? Um, it's a symbol of sin. It's small, it spreads, it infects whole areas. And so Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 said, hey, cleanse yourself of the leaven of sin. So here's the idea. Passover, the Passover lamb, was about salvation. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was about sanctification. The, the Passover was God saves me. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was in response, I honor him with holiness. You see, sometimes people have this wrong idea that the God of the Old Testament was all about holiness and obedience, and the God of the New Testament doesn't care about holiness and obedience, he's just about grace. That's just not true. God doesn't change, and he wrote the whole thing, right? So what you see when you look back at this is God has always operated this way. The same for the Israelites then, the same for us today. God saves us. In response, we honor him with holiness. Romans chapter 6, if you by the Spirit put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. Right, so if you are saved in Christ, if you've been saved by the Passover lamb, now it's time for us to move into the unleavened bread. Okay, we rejoice in our salvation. We don't earn our salvation with our good works. But we do respond to our salvation. Put it another way, now we don't work for our salvation, but we do work from our salvation. And that's what we see in the unleavened bread. Okay, verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. So in verse 21 through 28, Moses passed the word of God on to the elders. The elders passed the word of God on to their families. And through this process, everyone in Israel learned about the Passover. And notice that God provided the means of salvation, but the people had to appropriate it. You see, it wasn't enough to know about the Passover lamb. It wasn't enough to like the Passover lamb. It wasn't enough to even believe in the power of the Passover lamb. You had to slay the lamb and you had to apply the blood to the doorpost of your house. Similarly today, it is not enough to know about Jesus. 
It's not enough to respect Jesus. It's not enough to even believe that Jesus did what he said he did. The scriptures say that in order for us to be saved by the work of Christ, we have to personally appropriate in our lives through repentance and faith. And just like the Israelites had to apply the blood to their households, we have to apply the blood of Christ to our lives through repentance and faith. Only then does the work of Christ become effectual in our lives. Verse 29, at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. So after showing incredible patience, God did what he promised to do. He moved through the land of Egypt. He struck down every firstborn, and there was incredible sorrow. And in verse 31, Pharaoh finally relents. He says, up, go out from my people and bless me also. So the 10th plague accomplished its purpose. And um, I know a lot of people struggle with the idea of God moving through Egypt and just striking down the firstborn. And I thought a lot about it this week, trying to Try to be helpful. I'm just going to give you a couple thoughts to help you process it. Um, it's good to keep in mind first that the Egyptians weren't innocent, right? So they had actively participated in the oppression and enslavement of Israel, and they had participated in the genocide that was recorded in chapter one. So it's not as though, man, they were like innocent and God was being unjust. He is perfect in his justice. Also, second, remember that God gave Pharaoh 11 opportunities to repent, and God was extraordinarily patient with Pharaoh, but Pharaoh refused. Third, we learn later that actually some of the Egyptians joined the Israelites. We're told that there was a mixed multitude that included Egyptians that went up from the land. And so I don't know how it worked, but apparently there was some way that Egyptians could take refuge under the blood of the lamb in the same way that the Israelites did. It's also worth, when we're thinking about these issues, it's worth just remembering, man, that with our limited knowledge and our culturally conditioned worldviews and our three-pound brains, we're just not in a position to criticize God's justice. It's just, it, we're just not, we don't have the proper mental equipment to be able to criticize the God who is justice. And so we just need to approach these things with, with the proper humility. And then also, finally, keep this in mind. God could have demanded our death as payment for our sins. But instead, he sacrificed his firstborn so that we could be saved. So when you think about God and you wrestle with these hard issues in the scriptures, let that be what you start and end with. Okay, this is the character of God. That even though he was justified in bringing judgment, instead he brought judgment on his son so that I could be saved. So I hope that's just kind of helpful as you process through these things. So verse 33 through 42 records the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. It's, it begins, they traveled in haste from Ramses to Succoth. And we're told that there are about 600,000 men, which means they're probably about 2 million people. And this is a fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. God said, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. That happened. Right? The, the people of Israel came into Egypt as a family, and they left as a nation. Even with great oppression, God kept his promise. And then in verse 43 through 50, we come back to the institution of the Passover festival. Now, what's interesting is that in this whole account, there are only four verses that actually describe the Passover, and there are 15 verses that tell us to remember the Passover, okay? which leads to the last thing that we learn. Number three, salvation must be remembered. Salvation must be remembered. The Lord was so clear about the importance of remembering the Passover. Look at chapter 12, verse 26. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service, by acting this way, living this way? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. So God is saying this, live in such a way that your kids ask why. Live in such a way that your kids ask why. Hey, why do we go to church every Sunday? Why are we in Bible study every Wednesday night? 
Why do you and mom serve on a volunteer team? Why do we give generously? Why do we go on mission trips? Why do we pray for our neighbors and our family members and our friends? And then you answer, because of the lamb. Because of the lamb. We do all of this because of what God has done for us. You want to talk about a powerful testimony in your kids' lives. Live a life that can only be explained if the gospel is true. God says, hey, I want you to remember the Passover. Every single year, keep this festival. Why? Because he knew that they would forget. He knew that they would be tempted to trust in false gods which could not deliver them. He knew that when things got hard and they got hard and they will get hard in your life, he knew that they would be tempted to doubt God's wisdom and God's goodness and God's counsel. And so he said, hey, I need you to remember my salvation. I need you to remember what I did for you so you trust me. So every single year, here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna keep the Passover. It's gonna help you remember. We're often tempted to do the same thing that the Israelites did, aren't we? And we forget our salvation. And we trust in false gods which can't save. When things get hard, what do we do? We start to question God's word. Man, is what God's word says about sexuality true? It's really hard. What God's word says about relationships and forgiveness, true? And we start to doubt God's goodness, his wisdom, his counsel for our lives. So we need to be reminded as well. God gave Israel the Passover to help them remember what has God given us? He's given us communion. He's given us communion as the way that we remember our salvation. See, Jesus instituted communion at the Passover meal. He said to his followers, hey, go and present or go and prepare the meal for us that we would eat Passover together. And so they did, but then he, he changed it. It's very strange. He said, hey, actually take your shoes off. I'm gonna wash your feet. Thought, I thought we were supposed to have our shoes on, our belts. He's like, no, no, no. Because what I'm gonna do, you're actually gonna be able to rest. And he said, and I want you to get the bread and I want you to get the wine. He said, but don't, don't worry about the lamb. That's the main part of the whole meal. Why don't we need a lamb on the table? So Jesus said, the lamb will be at the table, just not on the table. I am the lamb of God who will be slain to take away the sins of the world. You see, every time that you take communion, this is what God Almighty is saying to you. This is what he's saying. You're my child, but you were hopelessly lost. Enslaved to false gods, full of sin and pride, you could not save yourself. Deserving of judgment, deserving for my wrath to fall upon you. But in that moment, I loved you. Precious to me so precious to me that I'm willing to die for you. When you take communion, remember this, my blood for your blood, my body for your body, my perfect righteousness for your sin, my eternal life for your eternal death. If you will simply hide under the blood of the lamb, you will be forgiven of your sins and brought into the people of God. Communion is a reminder of the sinfulness of sin and the incredible grace of God. So we're going to end by taking communion together. And what I want to say, if you're here and you have not hid under the blood of the Lamb, don't take communion. I hope you can see why you shouldn't. 
This is a symbol of what Christ has done for you. So don't take this if you haven't taken Christ. Instead, take him. Apply the blood of the lamb to your life. You do that through repentance and faith. You confess to the Lord, God, I've sinned. I haven't honored you. But I repent. I turn from my sin. I turn to you. Would you forgive me and make me new? I'm committed to following Christ as my Lord and Savior. If you come to the Lord in genuine repentance and faith, if you hide under the blood of the lamb, you will find refuge. So don't take this. Take Christ. But if you're here and you are in Christ, you are hidden under the blood. I'm going to give you a couple things to think about. Ask yourself this question. Where have you been looking for salvation where it's not going to be found? Is there a relationship that you've been looking to? Is there some sort of change in your career? There's some sort of healing in your family? Some, some, some sort of physical deliverance that you've been thinking, if I just had that, I'd have salvation. Friends, it's not true. Salvation belongs to the Lord. and He's given it to you in Christ. Everything you need for okayness, you have in Jesus. So if that's you, I just encourage you to pray and to repent of that. Give that to him. Renew your trust in Christ. Maybe you're here and, and you've been faithful. You've been faithfully walking, walking with Christ. You're tired. You're worn out. It's hard. I just want to encourage you that this should be a nourishing meal for you. This is how important you are to God. He traded places with you. This is the confidence that you have in death, that Christ who died for your sins and was buried rose again. This is the hope that you have in eternity, that he's going to come back one day to judge the living and the dead. That every single thing that you've done for him, every single sacrifice you've made for his glory will be repaid. So, like Paul said, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. So what I want to do is I just want to give you a minute to bow your heads and just pray and ask the Holy Spirit, how is he leading you to respond? And then in just a minute, I'll lead us in taking communion together. bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for you. Take this in remembrance of him. This cup represents the blood of Christ, the blood of the lamb that was shed so that you could be passed over. Take this in remembrance of him. In response to this good news, I'm going to invite you to stand and sing with me.